0: This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by you, our dedicated listeners and supporters. Thanks to your continued listening, sharing, and donations, we've been able to continue the show free from third-party advertisers and sponsors. So, thank you. And if you'd like to learn about other ways you can support the show, visit patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis.
1: Hi, my name is Cher uh, Ali Butt, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of CB Therapeutics. We are uh, at the forefront of bioengineering for products such as psilocybin, DMT, and different types of cannabinoids.
0: You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. I'm really excited to finally be back with everybody. We're on a a bit of a break there as I prepared for season two, but excited to be back and really excited to be back with this particular guest. I'm here with Cher Ali Butt of CB Therapeutics. They've been doing some really, really interesting work with biosynthesizing uh, cannabinoids as well as all sorts of... um, tryptamine compounds, psychedelics and stuff. So we're going to have a ton of awesome stuff to talk about. So thanks so much, Sheriff, for being willing to come on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I mean, this is very exciting. So thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you've you've got a a fascinating story to tell of kind of how you got to where you are and where things are going. So I think this will be a really uh, jam-packed episode. So just to start off, I'm sure you get tired of doing this, but very briefly, can you give kind of the um, elevator pitch for CB Therapeutics to give people a sense of what you're doing? And then I want to back up a little bit and talk about your personal story and how you got to where you are now.
1: Sure. So uh, CB Therapeutics uh, was started back in uh, 2015, and it was by myself and my college friend, Dr. Jacob Ogan. And the whole idea behind CB Therapeutics was that we wanted to you know, back back in the day, CBD and a lot of these cannabinoids were very expensive. So yeah. we wanted to find a way to you know make it cheaper, make it more accessible. So out of that, what came was uh, you know creating this biotech platform that would allow us to insert genes of any type into a an organism and allow them to make a certain product. So you know we started back in 2015. Uh, we started working on cannabinoids. Uh, We are one of the top three companies in terms of scaling up and production of cannabinoids using yeast today in the world. And we're also the leading company in the world for biosynthesis of tryptamines, such as psilocybin, DMT, many of their analogs or other molecules in yeast Mm -hmm. as well. And lastly, we have a partnership with the Cleveland Clinic for clinical trials, which we we will be commencing in 2021.
0: That is really awesome to hear. So there's yeah. it sounds like there's a, a ton going on and it sounds like it the wheels got spinning kind of fast. I mean, four uh five years um is not very much time for a startup to um be making such big moves. So how I know you have a background in biochemistry and and business management and all these different things. What what was your journey like that got you to this point of wanting to start C B therapeutics?
1: You know, it's a very interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting journey. So um, I remember when I was uh, up in the Bay Area. So I used to live up in the Bay, and um, I was working for different companies. So I had a job at Novartis, mm-hmm. uh, working uh, with the FDA uh, on different types of drugs and quality management systems with another company that I was with. And uh, at that time, I decided I wanted to go to business school because I wanted to start this company. And everybody told me back then that you are crazy. (laughs) So people were like, you know, this is never going to work out. Cannabis is not even legal. You know, what are you doing with your life? Like, (laughs) you know, this is complete ridiculousness. Um, Pretty much everybody that I talked to told me the same thing. But, you know, I I figured, hey, you know, I'll go to business school and I'll, I'll pitch this idea. And if it sticks, cool, I'll do it. And if it doesn't stick, then I'll just go into like a pharmaceutical business development type role or something just to kind of move my career forward. And and to be honest with you, when I first moved to San Diego, I didn't think that this was going to stick. So, you know, the the, uh, the moving into the business development for some uh, pharmaceutical company sort of a thing seemed like the more likely situation to happen. Uh, But, you know, that's that's the thing about life or the beauty of life is, you know, you have to take risks, you have to you have to follow your passion and you have to do things that you want to do versus, you know what, what you think you should do. So, I mean, that's really how it happened. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes you don't expect things to happen, but they happen. And this is one of those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's, i always uh my ears always kind of perk up a little bit when i hear someone talk about laboratory quality management systems which sounds so nerdy but that's a large part of the work that i did as well was it was uh managing quality systems and labs and stuff and so it's it's nice to meet uh a, a fellow person who understands that world because it's kind of a small one <laughs> and and what did that look like
1: so the idea actually came about in 2011 uh when i was um up in the Bay. And I remember back then, you know, CBD was newly hot, you know, people were just finding Mm. out about it. And, you know, there was a few other cannabinoids that people were learning about. And, you know, I I remember back then that, uh, you know, I had a job that paid me, you know, 80 grand a year Mm. and back in 2011. And I remember even with making 80 grand a year, I don't think I could afford to buy CBD regularly. And it was kind of a weird thing. You know, it's a, here's this molecule. And I, and I make 80 grand, which is not bad as a salary, for a mm-hmm. 20 year old and um, I couldn't afford it. So out of that came the idea, uh, you know, my, my degree before that was in biochemistry. So, you know, I was always fascinated with biology. I was always fascinated with the idea that, you know, inside living organisms, there are these small machines. I mean, how crazy yeah. is that? Uh, I mean, it's almost unbelievable. So, I mean, that idea just was very fascinating to me and, and seeing that happen and, you know, studying it, doing, going to lab classes and doing things like that. And from there, you know, it it was just like a natural extension. And I mean, if you look at like, for example, vitamin D or (laughs) vitamin C or any of these molecules in the world that you have today that are freely accessible to the people, you'll notice that eventually there's a shift from, or even aspirin, for example. So aspirin, I'll take it. It's a good example. So I'll use that. It comes from the willow bark tree, Mm -hmm. tree bark, right? And you have to extract it. You know, the thing is, to supply the whole world of aspirin, there's not enough willow trees. So eventually, you have to shift the production from, let's say, using the natural source to something that's going to allow, you know, a more greener, a better production uh, methodology that was using E. coli bacteria for the production of these. So, so, you know, if you extend that concept to different things in the bioeconomy and the world in general, very quickly, you come to realize that there's just, you know, some things are just not... Very efficiently made using the natural production. Yeah. So that's kind of how the idea started taking hold in my mind back in 2011. And, you know, back then I had a couple different jobs. You know, I was working, uh, you know, previous to going to Novartis, I was working at Steep Hill as the lab director there. Oh, nice. The cannabis testing lab. Um, so, you know, I kind of had a little bit of ins and out and an understanding of. You know what the market is about or what people are interested in so that's kind of how it started and you know frankly you know what happened was this idea became like an obsession and, and i know this sounds ridiculous but you know i would go to work in the morning and i would get done at you know 5 or 6 p.m at my regular job and i would come home and i would spend you know instead of playing on the playstation and i love video games and you know i've been a gamer my whole life i you know, I, I stopped doing that, and I started just reading research articles. I mean, every day I would spend four or five hours after work, um, just researching this idea. And you know, even my friends and people around me were like, "What? What are you doing? <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> what, is, what is this all about? This is an illegal thing." Like, you, I, I back then actually, I was I wasn't even a U.S. citizen. I just became a U.S. citizen about a year mm-hmm. ago. So it's been a long journey for me. Uh, but you know, it was, it was just like, there was just so many weird things about the situation. I don't have any money. I'm not a citizen. The, the idea is illegal, but you know, that's the thing about things that you get fascinated about, right? It's like yep. a lot of the times it doesn't make sense. A lot of the times you just, you just are curious about it and and that's how it started. So it started with me reading maybe a few thousand research papers. I, I think collecting a lot of research papers in my free time, um, uh, writing up a bunch of stuff like this could make this you could do this with that Mm -hmm. and just kind of freelancing it and back then it you know it wasn't even about starting a company it wasn't even about it was just hey this is an idea this is cool let me see how far the rabbit hole goes yeah and that's how it started And, and then um and then what happened was you know I went to from I left Steep Hill I went to Novartis did that for about two years. Then I went to another company called Naturalina Brands where I set up a, a brand new quality management system for the company. And at that point, I was like, okay, you know what? I think I've spent like three years, you know, figuring this out or whatever. And, you know, I might as well take a shot. You know, I might as well go to business school and, and, and figure this out. And and I remember famously at that time, you know, my, my, my dad told me, he's like, you know, the guy who makes tea at my office has an MBA. Is that what you to do with your life, son? That's... <laughs> so, you know, but uh, he was obviously he was, uh, you know, looking out for me and trying to give me good advice and make sure that I end up somewhere with my career. But, uh, you know, I said, hey, you know, let's take a shot. And I came down to San Diego and, uh, you know, it was very, um, there was a startup program here called StartR. So basically, you, you know, you uh, submit your startups and they pick like six start- startups every uh, every year to work on, like uh, they help you incorporate papers and things like that. Mm-hmm advice. So by chance, my first quarter, I applied for that program. And to my surprise, I actually got in, which was the craziest thing, because uh, everybody around me in business school was like, what is this all about? Because you know, typically, when you go to business school, Mm -hmm. everybody's very like suited and booted, they're all, you know, finance people, or you would never imagine somebody like, uh, with my background, or, you know, would be amongst these people in that way. You know, obviously, my background is in cannabis. I use cannabis. You know, I always have for over a decade. So it was very interesting. And, you know, once I got into Stardar, they gave us a little bit of money. They gave us some encouragement. I was like, okay, you know, we'll see where this goes. And then from there on, you know, we went to different competitions. We won over 50 grand in different competitions um, oh, wow. for CB therapeutics, you know, because I didn't really have any money back then. Uh, I had a little bit of savings and. So I was taking uh, 24 units in business school, and I had a part-time job as a TA, mm-hmm. and I was doing CB therapeutics part-time. So it was a very you know interesting time, and, and that's how it started. So second year of business school, I started another company uh, up in the Bay Area called CB Labs, which is a cannabis testing lab like Steep Hill. Mm-hmm. So by chance, when I was up in the Bay Area, I met Jacob, who's my old friend from uh, college, and he was finishing up his PhD in bioengineering from Berkeley.
0: Oh, nice.
1: And Jacob is one of the smartest people I know, and uh, you know he knows he knows his stuff. So, you know, we we went out to a bar, and uh, you know we were drinking beer, and we were like, "Hey, should we do this together?" Like, you know, the bio stuff. I I know the cannabis stuff, and uh, you know, let's take a shot. And, and that's how CB Therapeutics was born.
0: That is that is a perfect entrepreneurial tale, <laughs> and is and you're so right that like when you're passionate about something and it just like is eating away at your brain. Like you can't, you know, you just can't get past it. And it's, it's been like this in my life too, that you don't necessarily see the path forward or know, um, where things are going to lead, but you're so passionate about it. You've got to take steps forward and just see. Um, and it's amazing uh, where things can lead when you just follow, you know, it's, uh, like Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss, you know, sort of thing. But, um, That's super fascinating, and and so, um, a couple of questions, and I'm going to try not to get sidetracked because there's so much going on in my mind. I guess one thing I'll ask is, uh, why did you focus on fungi over bacteria to biosynthesize these compounds? Sure.
1: So, um, so, you know, these sorts of decisions were uh, actually uh, my partner's decision. So. Mm The co founder, but from what I know, um, is that yeast is the most scalable organism in the planet. So, you know, yeah. we've been manipulating yeast for you know, dec you know, millennia and millennia and whatnot. We've been making beer, all these things. Uh, that's one reason. So, yeast is definitely more scalable than bacteria, bacterial fermentation is in general. It's not, you know, obviously, it's uh, on a case by case basis, right? The second reason is, you know, typically, um, you know it's a lot safer to work with yeast than it is to work with E. coli. Uh, so those two considerations, I think, and, you know, typically when you're looking at the types of proteins you want to express, some of them may be a lot more complex than what potentially the bacteria can handle. Well, um, He's a prokaryote. So that's, so those are the types of uh, considerations that we took into play, but, but, you know, I mean, you know, this is mostly Jacob is the architect here <laughs> of, of this yeah. uh, master plan. So,
0: yeah, yeah, totally. And um, so the first thing that you chose to focus on, correct me, if, correct me if I'm wrong, was CBD, right?
1: So CBG. So that's the first CBG. Pathway, okay. pathway. So we worked, we first got CBG, then we got CBD, then we got CBC, then we started working on the V uh, variants like mm-hmm. CVE, CBGV, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you to just for everyone listening to put it in context, your company was the first to do this with yeast, right? To no, to biosynthesize.
1: So there were there were maybe three other companies that had done this with yeast before us.
0: Gotcha. Uh, specifically okay.
1: Specifically for cannabinoids. So uh, there was one in Canada. There was maybe one here in the U.S. One or two others uh, that had done this before. Um, but in tryptamines, we are we are the first. So for example, gotcha. in the U.S. Um, there are two other companies that are working on tryptamines as well uh, using biosynthesis, but uh, you know they started like maybe a year after that we did.
0: Yeah. And you know I know just from being in the, the cannabis industry and some of the dogma that can that can surround some of the stuff, have you received criticism from the cannabis industry, from the context of like, oh, you're pursuing you know isolated compounds, why do you need to do this when the plant is already producing these things? And you've kind of already alluded to right, right. some of the rationale with some of these things. But I know that I've encountered some right. of these arguments myself. So I know that you have to as well. So what are some of those criticisms you've received and, and what has been your response to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the, the first thing I hear, or the most interesting one is, oh, this is a genetically modified product or <laughs> whatnot. But it's yeah. like, you know, we're not selling you the yeast. You know, the yeast is the GMO. I mean, you know, water is water, whether you purify it from the ocean or, you know, wherever it is. I mean, H2O is H2O. So that's that's the one, the first thing that I look at it. The second thing I have to hear from people is, well, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff in the plants that you can't replicate with the yeast right now, which is sort of true. I mean, you know, we typically work on a compound by compound basis. And typically when you're looking at extractions from hamper cannabis, there are hundreds of molecules in there, maybe in trace concentrations. But uh, typically that's the case. So a lot of times people will say, hey, maybe this is not as effective as what is found in the plant. And there may be a case that you could make for that. <laughs> But I think the biggest thing that people say is, hey, like you said, is why are you doing this? You can already do this with the plant. And uh, there's a lot of people that, uh, that don't understand the idea of sometimes why it's necessary to uh, have isolated molecules. So mm-hmm. if you look at the structure of the FDA... I don't think that there's many medications or anything at all out there. That's a mixture of different, like, you know, it's like a whole plant extract, right? Mm -hmm. It's typically two or three or four or five molecules that are used in a very specific way for a very specific condition. So, you know, when I, when I hear these arguments and I hear these for like, you know, for example, in psychedelics, I'm hearing this a lot. It's like, Oh, these plants are, these molecules are only meant to be used in a certain way. You need to have a shaman, you need to have a ritual. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I, I can see the case for that. I mean, you know, in, in rudimentary settings where you don't have an understanding of medicine, you don't understand how the FDA works, you don't understand how you bring drugs to the market uh, with proper scientific testing and procedure. So in that setting, yeah, I think it, it would it, it, you may need that sort of infrastructure to, to safely use a molecule uh, like psilocybin or DMT. But I think that, you know, there's a reason why we have all these scientific rigors. There's a reason mm-hmm. why, you know, the FDA doesn't have, you know, 50 different plants that are used as an FDA-approved therapy. Not to mention, I mean, you know, even if you were to get an FDA-approved you know, plant, for example, you would still, um, you know, there's just so much variability, like, you know, right? Like, if you're mm-hmm. testing the same, yeah. the same plant, each specific plant is gonna be slightly different. So. These sorts of issues are completely bypassed when you have a platform which makes pure molecules, and that is exactly what we wanted to do with this.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is a topic that um, I spoke with Ethan Russo uh, a while back, a um, year and a half ago or so, or a year ago, nice. and, and we and, and we talked about this as well, like the, pra- the practical realities of drug development in the United States. Yeah. and what you just highlighted how the fda works how the drug approval process works in the united states i mean it's one reason why we still don't have sativex approved in the united states because sativex is one of these weird uh pharmaceuticals that is actually a cannabis extract um you know quasi standardized standardized to thc and cbd and um and some other minor compounds but it is an herbal extract and so it uh, just the way our systems exist um things like that are more challenging to push through and, and our system doesn't, doesn't quite know how to, uh, I don't know, I guess how to rigorously study it in the same way. Cause there's, like you said, there's so many variables um, at play that, how can you control everything and all that sort of stuff. And of course other countries have other ways of, of tackling that sort of thing. Some countries have a sort of, um, um, uh, medicinal, uh, botanical pipelines sort of, you know, that are sort of treated slightly different, you know, a little more rigorously than dietary supplements, but not quite the same as pharmaceuticals, but, um, it is, it's a, it's a tricky process. And so when you are just thinking about the practicalities of how to make these natural products available, um, widely on the market, it, it does often require, um, this sort of thinking, and to get some of the research done that we would like to see as well—human clinical research and everything—it requires these, you know, standardized, consistent right. um, products. Um, and yeah,
1: the other way I look at it is, you know, aside from CBD, if you look at some of the other cannabinoids. So let's just take, uh, let's just take another example. Let's say CBC, cannabichromene. Yeah. So CBC is extracted uh, today generally from uh, hemp or cannabis plants. And we've done some research, and uh, what we found out is typically a kilogram of uh, 90% CBC will sell for anywhere between thirty to $50,000 a kilogram. Now, it, you know, I mean, that's a lot of money. Right, and you're just talking about you know one kilogram of product, and if you compare that to CBD, for example, CBD is going anywhere between two to four thousand, five thousand, depending on, on the quality. Now, it, now if somebody is going to do research and figure out what CBC or any of these molecules are going to do, it's going to be very expensive. So you know, part of what you know, the whole goal behind the platform that we've created was to democratize access to these molecules. So another example I'll use here is psilocybin. Mm -hmm. So there's two ways that you can make psilocybin before we came into the market. The first one was obviously extraction from mushrooms. Mushrooms typically contain 0.6% psilocybin by weight on average. So if you do the math on it, it's about 100 grand a kilogram of pure psilocybin, which is a lot of money. Now, the other option is what uh, Compass Pathways is doing. The company that recently IPO'd, that's doing the psilocybin clinical trials, they are buying Synthetic psilocybin that's used with chemi- made with chemical synthesis, mm-hmm. that's about half a million dollars a kilogram.
0: Wow. Wow. Cool. And, and so that leads to another question that I had about um, the rationale for why you've chosen to do things the way you are. I'm sure you've been hit with this question before. Why biosynthesis over... Uh, traditional laboratory uh, chemical synthesis.
1: So, typically, when you do uh, traditional lab uh, chem you get racemers, or you know those uh, racemic features. and uh, that's one problem with chemical synthesis. The other problem with chemical synthesis is the cost. So, as I mentioned, chemical synthesis is very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the leverage that you have using biology is once you program the cells to do something they automatically make the product. Yeah. So typically, when uh, so once you have the hardest part is genetically engineering the strain of yeast to for it to have the ability to make this product. Once you do Mm -hmm. that, then the cost is minimal. Then the cost is the cost of fermentation, the cost of sugar, which is not that much. Compare that to every single time you want to do something, you have to mix chemicals and and things like that. So, So that's the big advantage here is you can make any molecule once you figured out the pathway, once you've developed the yeast, it's cheap, it's easy, it's accessible, and it's green.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are are uh, really good points to bring up. And the the idea of the the isomers and side products and stuff that's something that we're seeing in the hemp market right now. Um, some of my friends that are still working in the cannabis testing labs, you know, that I still talk to, one thing that they're seeing now is uh, delta-8-THC. So a lot right. of uh, people are rushing to... Um, a lot of times they say it's hemp-derived, but really they're synthesizing delta-8-THC from CBD. Right. Um, and what the testing labs are seeing on the chromatograms when oh. they're running these samples are all sorts of other peaks um, of mystery compounds. They don't know what they hey. are. They assume... There are various forms of THC or, or possibly CBD degradation products, whatever, or, or just totally different um, side products or whatever, heavy polymers in some cases. So um, this idea of non-target compound production um, and purity um, is is definitely a problem. And obviously, you can do chemical synthesis in ways where you, you get extremely pure products. Uh, that's very common, but... Um, it's definitely a lot simpler to use an organism that's going to engineer a, a very targeted compound every time uh, right. without worrying necessarily about all of these side reactions. And something you mentioned in an interview of yours that I watched in preparing for this interview is you mentioned that sometimes with the chemical synthesis, you run into problems with the enantiomers, these compounds that have the same... Uh, You know, the same molecular formula and laid out the same, but they're essentially mirror images of each other, the left hand and the right hand. And sometimes with chemical synthesis, you don't always, depending on what analytics you're doing to verify quality of your products, you may not actually have your right hand. You may have your left hand or vice versa. Um, And I I heard you mention that sometimes with the biosynthesis, it can be simpler to ensure the proper uh, form of the molecule you're going after actually gets produced.
1: Yeah. So, so that's, that's the other beauty of using the platform is, you know, when, when typically when you do chemical synthesis, it's, it can be tough and very difficult to control which isomer you actually end up making And there's a lot of waste. Um, yeah. so typically if you make one kilogram of any product, uh, using chemical synthesis, you have about 10, 10 kilograms of chemical waste. Yeah, uh, that's a huge down, um, with biosynthesis the advantages i mean the advantages are huge like i said cheaper faster um, and the fact that you use the same machinery or similar machinery to what was in the original organism so for example you know the enzymes that we use in the yeast are basically uh, derived from cannabis and hemp but we've we've modified Mm -hmm. them right so we've made them more efficient we've made them into like super racing you know uh, enzymes so that allows us to you know better adapt to the host in this case that would be the yeast uh but because we are using enzymes that are very similar to what's in the plant itself essentially the molecule comes out exactly as it would in the plant and that's one of the other beauty, beautiful things about this
0: yeah and do you ever run into like one th- one issue that breeders are running into with cannabis um, and I had a really fascinating conversation with Kevin McKernan about this from medicinal genomics about um, essentially, um, well, I guess maybe you're you're able to bypass this, um, but you have leaky genes. You have um, genes that that code for certain enzymes, but under you know slightly varying environmental conditions, they might actually produce a slightly different enzyme, and it's one reason why getting a THC free plant is challenging when you still want CBD and other cannabinoids because it's possible uh, for little trace tiny amounts of THC to be produced by uh, the genes that would normally code for uh, the synthase enzymes you know that would produce CBD are you able to bypass those sorts of problems through this method
1: yes yeah, so you know we, in the beginning we had that sort of an issue mm-hmm. where so, so you're right the the Enzymes that are naturally found in the plants, if you use them as is, mm-hmm. you will have a lot of uh, leakage, as, as you described. Um, part of, you know, part of any good genetically engineered organism is uh, not just using the original enzymes in the way they were. Because, you know, you have to remember, these enzymes, the way they're found, are optimized by nature to work mm-hmm. in plants. Or in fungi, for example, for you know, like psilocybin and DMT, and different type, sort of fungi. So when you port over those enzymes into a new host or a new organism, of course, it's it's going to be very suboptimal. In yeah. fact, uh, you will probably have to change, you know, a good 30, 40 percent of that enzyme to be able to to have you know the optimal functioning in that cell itself. So, you know, you know, here's the funny thing. The funny thing is when you're in college and you're looking at genetic engineering courses and you look at your biology textbook. And, this, and the way they explain it, and it's just so easy. It's just like, okay, you take this, <laughs> right. one, you put it in this other organism, voila, and now you have everything. Right, easy. It's easy. Like, you know, it's just like, uh, that's it. Like, and there's nothing to it. But, you know, in practice, things are very different. In practice, there's a million things that go wrong. In practice, you put in one gene, something else is imbalanced. So from the, so it's almost like you're not just putting in genes and then letting the genes work you have to optimize the whole organism. One thing may need another thing to be out of balance. So you have to basically control, like for example, for for us to make CBD in yeast, I think we've had to on the same yeast cell, we've had to add maybe 20 genes into the cell, and mm-hmm. we've had to remove maybe 10, 15 of them.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so for example, yeast typically makes uh makes alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you give it sugar. So we've had to remove that functionality because if, if the yeast is continually making alcohol from the carbon flux or the carbon that we're Mm -hmm. feeding it, then we're losing efficiency. So that's another one of those things that you have to work. So, so the way, you know, my realization in the last five years is there's, there's a world of a difference between theory and application. And, and that's, you know, the big lesson here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And a sort of funny question that I know someone listening wants to ask, I can just feel it (laughs) is, um, is there any way to use this technology to, um, let's say that you didn't totally remove the yeast ability to make alcohol and let's say it's making alcohol and, um, whatever target cannabinoids. Could you create a process where you essentially made an alcoholic beverage that um, automatically produces cannabinoids as part of the brewing process?
1: Yes, we, we've had we've had some inquiries about this. So yeah, oh, that's why I said I know someone's
0: thinking about this.
1: Yeah, it's a concept that's out there, and uh, yeah, theoretically, you can do that. Um, you know, again, the question really is. You know, I haven't really made any beer like that. I mean, I tried beer making in college just as an mm-hmm. amateur, and uh, uh, yes, you could do that. I mean, however, I think it would be difficult to regulate that product, for yes. example, in, in the current market, and, and that's sort of why we haven't gone through with that. But yeah, it is totally yeah, no, that. Your question, of course, it's totally possible.
0: Yeah, I and mean, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Um, and uh, switching gears a little bit away from the cannabinoids and we may come back to them but to uh, talk about the the focus on psychedelics and um some of your partnerships and work that you're you're trying to do to help supply clinical trials and that sort of thing i wanted to make sure we spend a little bit of time talking about that sure um what what is it particularly about psychedelics that piqued your interest because you had your background in uh, cannabis testing labs and all of that. Um, is it that you, I mean, cause it's sort of like cannabis research, psychedelic research is starting to snowball again, finally right. p- picking up from where it left off in like the sixties, right. but, um, it's, it's picking up steam and we're starting to see, um, FDA willingness to, um, you know, create a pathway for these compounds to be used therapeutically. So, um, is this something that came from looking at all of that and seeing where that's all going, or does it also stem from kind of a personal interest or any personal experience as well?
1: Absolutely. Personal experience. Yeah. (laughs) uh, You know, you know, I I always like to be upfront and, you know, some people don't like to talk about their experiences with, you know, psychedelics or things like that. I'm I'm very open about my, my uh, life and my experiences. Um, you know, I started using psilocybin or mushrooms, uh, you know, obviously, in college, I did them recreationally a couple of times with friends. Sure. But, but in the last few years, it kind of came back because you know I was, you know, obviously starting a company is is not the easiest thing in the world, and uh, you know, you do have a lot of mental challenges. <clears throat> you know, I've had I've had to uh, deal with depression over the years, uh, back and forth. So, you know, it 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 I started using them more so recently, like once a month or once every other month, as a as a reset button for myself personally, and, you know, because I had a lot of friends that did it and there's a lot of evidence mounting and you know, it, it kind of works. So I actually, um, that's kind of how it started for me. And, uh, what's interesting is at, at that time, me and uh, Jacob and some of our friends we would always joke about it. Like, Oh, we should do this. Or, you know, obviously, you know, people talk about it, but there was never really any like serious catalyst at that time. What changed that for us was, uh, so you know, I so CB Therapeutics is also part of Y Combinator. So we were mm-hmm. in uh, Y Combinator in 2018. So in 20 in uh, 2019, there was a YC Bio event. So all the bio companies come, in, and by chance, I met somebody there that was uh, talking about psychedelics. And they were just standing up and they were talking about psychedelics. And I was like, wow, this guy is different. I should go talk to him. You know, he's a yeah. very interesting guy. He's not the typical YC type of person. So he's another founder. I started talking to the guy and he seemed very interesting. And uh, he was, you know, interested in seeing how you could make all these uh, molecules. And, uh, you know, obviously we had a platform. And then, you know, it, it happened where, you know, I invited him to San Diego. He came and stayed at my house. And, you know, nice. we, we, started, we became friends after that and started talking about it and, and then they were like, you know, um, you know, we'd be interested in uh, having you make silocybin for us, filing the IP, and uh, you know, we'll give you four million bucks. We'll give you, you know, X percentage of uh, a joint venture, which we're going to list publicly on the Canadian stock exchange. And I was like, okay, I'm in. I mean, we'll do it. Uh, so that's how it started. Now that's not how it ended. So what happened was, um, you know, things didn't work out with this group uh, in terms of, you know, the money never came. Uh, they kept leading us on um, and then we started getting a little like suspicious like maybe they know some competitors or something nah. and then like, push us back so, so that time we made the decision like hey you know what we can't wait for this person uh, or this group to come back and give us the money this is a very important project there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of steam around this so we should just absorb the cost and we should move forward and we should be the first to file IP in the space and actually make the product so that's what we ended up doing is we said okay you know what you know maybe they're going to come through maybe they're not but we should just take the project on. we've already you know put some time and energy into it so that's what started with psilocybin now so we were uh, we filed a patent for psilocybin in uh october of last year and uh and we made obviously made a press release about it and uh you know the next day i got a call from cleveland clinic uh dr brian barnett he's a doctor there and uh he was very interested in what we were doing. And, uh, you know, that's how it started the conversation. And four months later, we signed a document saying, hey, we would like to collaborate on cl- cl- our clinical trials. And, you know, then we made DMT. We made, you know, seven, eight of the other molecules of mushrooms. Um, I believe we just made uh, five mio DMT, bufotenin. Uh, mm-hmm. recently in East. and now we're working on a bunch of other molecules that uh, that are undisclosed but but you'll be hearing about them so so that's kind of how the whole thing happened and then you know because we ended up being in this new space with psychedelics it's almost like a, a brand new Pandora's box is open right I mean cannabis itself was one and now there's this and and it's very interesting because you know if you look at the time in uh, 2019 was a very interesting year obviously 2020 is an even more interesting year. But the buildup of how things have happened is very interesting. So late 2019 is when the cannabis public markets crashed, right? So before that, you had huge valuations of companies, you know, all these crazy things. And then then we start finding out that, you know, maybe these companies aren't going to live up to what they claim they're going to live up to. You know, it's all just the press releases or or whatever, and they're losing money. So that caused the great crash. I mean, I remember uh, before 2019, valuations were sky high. You could, you could write stuff on a napkin and you could probably get funding. Uh, 2019, I think, changed that a little bit. And then, you know, so that was late 2019 when things were really terrible for the public cannabis markets. Then comes 2020, <laughs> and the regular market crashes. So, you know, it's been a very interesting journey. But what I see, see still is psychedelics are still very popular. In fact, the, the rush is starting now. And, you know, for cannabis, I don't think the rush is going to come back like it used to be. I mean, you know, cannabis and uh, cannabinoids are always going to be there like any other uh, commodity or any other product that we have there. But that sort of intensity in in growth, that sort of like, you know, craziness is not going to come back in my opinion. But that is happening now with, with the, these psychedelics.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, um, it's. It's been fascinating to be a part of that whole, um, I don't know, this maturation process for an immature market. It's, you know, just speaking to the business side of your brain, it's a fascinating thing to behold to see a new market enter uh, enter the space and go through these these changes. You know, we saw it with um, technology spaces in the 90s and early 2000s and websites and dot-com booms and stuff but it is is such a fascinating thing to see um to see these markets find their grounding and i agree that cannabis is now it's maturing and investors are getting wiser and you know i yeah 2008 was definitely a, a big drop because i my naive young mind getting out of grad school i got wrapped up into companies that were like oh yeah we'll throw you stock options and you know everything's great and we're valued at you know all of you know all of this money per share and you know look out 10 years from now and you're going to be you know (laughs) just swimming in cash from from how the cannabis industry is going to grow and then all of that totally totally collapsed um it gave me some important life lessons because i've learned hey don't take stock options in a startup unless you're extremely uh extremely confident that what they're going to do is going to be you know it's going to be yeah seriously work out um but, but you're right. And yeah, the, the psychedelic stuff, like we now have cities that are starting to decriminalize entheogenic plants and that sort of thing. Laws are just like with cannabis slowly city by city. And then very soon state by state, Oregon's working on voting for, uh, you know, therapeutic access to, uh, psilocybin mushrooms. We're going to see this domino effect play out, uh, very, very similarly, although I think it's going to be different psychedelics is just a different beast but it's very similar in that buildup of energy and the snowball that's 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 rolling and and building i'm really interested to see where it goes um and one thing i wanted to ask you because you've talked mainly about tryptamines Mm -hmm. i also wanted to ask you about phenethylamines is that something that is on your company's radar as well um and i don't mean like mdma but i'm thinking about other um i mean mescaline is an interesting phenethylamine but there's also you know a whole world of interesting psychedelic phenethylamines out there, um, that are, uh, a lot of people just don't know as much about, it seems like.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, um, we have about, I would say about five or six other molecules that we're working on right now that are under wraps. Uh, mm-hmm. typically the way that we do it is, uh, we don't really disclose what we're working on until we sure. file the patents on them, um, which is just standard practice for any company. Um, but we have a couple in development that are fentanyl ethamines as well. Cool. Um, the, the challenge with, you know, these sorts of molecules, in my opinion, is, you know, the regulatory structure is just not that developed. So mm-hmm. it's very, you know, you're almost like in the Wild West, you know, so yeah. you don't really know exactly who's going to buy this, you know, you have we have a D license, we're, we're applying for a manufacturing license. The DEA is notoriously slow so if anybody is listening you know they should know uh it's a very slow process um and it just takes forever um and there's yeah there's a lot of problems that come with regulating new molecules and if anything if there's one thing we need as a society is a better infrastructure to handle these types of things because i don't Mm -hmm. think it's there i think i think the general world view is you know, drugs are bad and you don't want to do anything that the doctor doesn't prescribe. And that's the end of the conversation. So I think that needs to change.
0: Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, just the way our culture handles um, substance use and drug education, all of these things. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, the education work that I do is not just with adults, but also with kids, um, which some people are kind of like, what? you know, but, um, it's very, very important to, I think, to give kids a, an accurate portrayal of, of different drugs. And psychedelics are one of those that there's so much, I mean, with, with a lot of drugs, but especially psychedelics, there's so much of a mythos, all of these, you know, um, sort of grandiose ideas that surround them that it can be extremely challenging to, um, conceptualize them, to put them in a framework um, that fits, especially if, if someone has never experienced a psychedelic at all, then they really have no framework to fit it in because they just act very differently than a lot of other compounds that people might have, have tried recreationally or, or um, medicinally. So I agree, it's um, our, our systems, both in the drug development space, in drug education and from like a harm reduction perspective, just around public policy, uh, we have some evolution and growth, I think, to go through as a culture uh, to figure out what to do with some of these these products.
1: Absolutely. And I think what fascinates me even more of is, for a lot of these molecules, we don't even know how they work, right? Yeah. We, know, we know it does something and we can see like the, the final effects, but we don't really, I mean, we're just starting to figure out like how some of the mechanisms are happening and you know, for people to to get passionate about this and to figure stuff like this out, there needs to be a more positive connotation and a positive, uh, you know, association with these types of education and ideas and things. And if if that's not there, then you know we're not really going to be progressing that much.
0: Right. Yeah, I think it's important uh, for people in general to conceptualize these sorts of things as as tools, like. Right. Things, things have a, a place and time and an appropriate application. There are safe ways to handle them, and there are unsafe ways to handle right. them. And and I think that's a very easy analogy for a lot of people to, to grasp onto, that you know these compounds, there are tools in a tool chest that we're still trying to understand even what some of the best applications for these tools are.
1: Right. Um,
0: but we do know that there are... Um, pretty safe ways to interact with them if you just have some basic education. Right, right. Yeah, and um, so yeah. I wanted to make sure I didn't miss this. So the clinical trial with Cleveland Clinic, what is that uh, clinical trial going to focus on? Can you speak to that at all?
1: Uh, so so we have a confidentiality agreement with them. Okay, but I, sure. So I can't talk too much about it, but what I can tell you is, it's going to be multiple clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not just one. Uh, And they're going to be focused on three or four or five different conditions. So one would be treatment-resistant depression, uh, various forms, a specific form of that, uh, PTSD, and addiction disorder. So those are the three we're focusing on right now.
0: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I'll be really looking forward to seeing the results of that. And like you mentioned earlier, some there's so much about your story I can personally relate to. We have some like overlapping backgrounds and things, but also in my own life, I struggle with depression You know, that comes and goes, that sometimes can be pretty serious. And that's something I've discovered on my own is how powerful psychedelics can be in treating um, not just depression, but also, and this is me speaking personally, not as a doctor suggesting anyone else to do this, but for myself, uh, you know, so not just depression, but also chronic anxiety and these sort of things, it, it can help substantially. And I think what the interesting promise of psychedelics is, is uh, particularly for mental health, uh, based on the research that's been done, is that, you know, we may be integrating compounds into our therapeutic tool chest that only need to be used a few times rather right. than drugs that need to be taken every single day that are changing, you know, potentially your biochemistry, causing adverse side effects, you know, long-term, you know, all these other things. And so it's a very interesting doorway into a almost a a new, um, it's not really new, rediscovered sort of uh, modality where you don't have to take a drug every day. Maybe you just need sessions, and right. you take a drug every three months or six months, right. and and you get possibly even more profound um, results. Right. Um, you know,
1: I would I would say if you weren't depressed before 2020, you're definitely <laughs> depressed now. So, you know, I think it's a it's a global phenomenon, and uh, you know, if, if you're stuck at home for a majority of you know the year, then yeah, everybody's gonna feel depressed. Which is why I think the, the need for these molecules, these specific therapies is even more so than, than it was, you know, last year. So mm-hmm. I definitely agree that, you know, there needs to, you know, uh, as a society, we've just been like, you know, conditioned to, to feel like, hey, you have a problem, go to the doctor and they'll give you a, you know, one of those pest dispensers with pills in them and uh, you pop one a day and, and that's it. One a day keeps the doctor away kind of a mentality and now we're just realizing that you know there are new molecules that are just so powerful like you said that you only need to use them once every three months you only need to use them once every six months or something because just that one use has enough punch or power packed in that punch where it just lasts so yeah. which is great right which is uh you don't have to take you know 90 pills you just take one session and you're good so that's that's a beautiful thing
0: Yeah. And if anyone listening isn't aware, another common um, benefit to to psychedelics as a therapeutic agent is uh, generally they're hard to abuse. They sort of have built in anti-abuse mechanisms because the experiences sometimes can be so profound, so sort of, you know, ground shaking for people that they usually they often don't want to do it again very soon or very often at all. Um, obviously there are exceptions to that. Um, but, uh, that's another thing that has researchers really, um, that's really piqued their interest in these compounds is that, oh, you can elicit this very, very strong effect and it's, it's not necessarily enjoyable. It can be, uh, beneficial on a, on a very high level. Um, but it's not always necessarily pleasurable, uh, you know, from a, a sensual sort of perspective or something. So it's, it's um yeah abusing psychedelics is a, is a little tougher than other things and uh, oh one thing that i wanted to ask and this is sort of on the technical side but um do you find that in using yeast to to biosynthesize psychedelics is it easier to focus on the these uh smaller simpler molecules like psilocybin like DMT that are very similar to serotonin roughly you know not super large compounds Versus something like LSD, which is a more complex molecule, bigger, and this is from my own ignorance because I don't, um, I haven't studied the the biosynthetic pathways that that um, produce compounds like that or or like LSA or anything like that. So is there, is it more challenging at all to get a yeast to produce a um, more complicated, just from a molecular standpoint, uh, something like LSD than it is a simpler compound like psilocybin or DMT?
1: um well, well typically uh you're right like uh typically the more complex a uh, molecule is um the harder it's going to be to make it just like it would be with chemical synthesis mm-hmm. um, but you know in the so for example in chemical synthesis you know like let's say you already know how hard it's going to be based on looking at the structure right so you know okay this okay. molecule has you know 50 atoms and et cetera et cetera you can have a very good idea in your mind of how it's going to work out right or how mm-hmm. complex be. In, in bio, I think it's a little different, and it's a little different because it's a lot more unpredictable. Um, you know, you may find genetics or genes from an organism that may be really good. So even if the co- even if the molecule is more complex, you know, you don't really have to do much. the The, the enzymes or the genetic machinery just does its own thing. Uh, alternatively, you may come across a molecule that's not that big that may be more problematic so it's a little more unpredictable unfortunately there
0: yeah yeah no that that makes sense and then that's why it takes so long in method development (laughs) whether it's uh in biosynthetic chemistry or analytical chemistry or whatever method development is always important always takes a while uh, to fine-tune those details but yeah that was something that just popped in my mind um that i didn't know if that was that was an issue um Well, I see we're getting close to the, the hour mark here. So I want to start looping things around and, and wrapping things up. Sure. Um, Can you, I know, you know, obviously you can't speak in details and I know you're working on, on all sorts of other compounds you'll be talking about soon, but is there anything else, um, you know, looking into the, let's say the 10 year future for CB therapeutics. Mm -hmm. um, What do you, and, and obviously the way our, paths go can lead you astray from your goals but what do you see for the the 10-year future for cb therapeutics
1: wow 10 years (laughs) that's a big one yeah
0: i know you can start with five if you like and then we can speculate after that
1: (laughs) yeah okay i will start with five because i think that's a little more uh you know i could probably talk a little bit more about that easier so in five years i think um where CB Therapeutics will be is we will have maybe some drugs that are about to be FDA approved. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in five years, I think maybe we will have two or three clinical trials that will be in phase three, getting close to finishing the, the trial. Um, I see us where, you know, today, for example, we have 12 cannabinoids that we've made in yeast, we have eight terpenes that we've made in yeast, and we have about 13 or 14 tryptamines that we made in yeast. I, I see in five years that we're probably going to cross the 500 or a thousand molecule mark. So mm-hmm. as we, as time goes forward, you become better and better at what you do. And, you know, yeah. back when we started four years ago, you know, you know, we were nearly not as good as where we are today. And obviously we've had over the years, we've brought on some excellent staff. We have uh, 18, uh, 18 full-time staff at CB therapeutics. We have, uh, nine PhDs uh, with, you know, seven to 10 years of experience. So with, with time and with bringing on new talent, you get better and better. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, the future, I think, of synthetic biology with these molecules is not in making one molecule. It's in making libraries of these. So for example, if I have psilocybin, now I can make 60 analogs of psilocybin. Now, those are interesting because now I can... Uh, play around with some of the properties like i can find the molecule that has similar benefits but it may only last 10 minutes versus let's say five hours um so so right now there's a land grab happening in the tryptamine space just like how there was in cannabis 10 years Mm -hmm. ago right everybody is filing patents everybody is trying to make new molecules i know I know of maybe four or five companies in the tryptamine space that are using chemical synthesis. Every two weeks, they, they're making a new molecule. They're, uh, you know, figuring out the crystal structure They're filing a patent on it. So in five years from now, I see a few clinical trials. I see over, I see our compound library over a thousand molecules, maybe even more depending on how things are going to work out. And of course, you know, with the, you know, so uh, with technology, things are going to get easier. Um, we have, we have one patent granted on a bioinformatics platform that we use oh, for cool. uh, you know, genetic and data manipulation and all sorts of uh, analyses in silico. So we, ha- we have another patent, which is about to be granted on that as well. Uh, so using that in conjunction with, you know, ultra modern cutting edge technologies and uh, techniques that we will be able to, for example, purchase in the future once we have more funding uh, will, I think, allow us to probably even cross that thousand molecule mark. And then from there, you know, the idea is to find partners that want mm-hmm. to use some of those molecules. Us, us, as CB Therapeutics, we will never be able to use, or any company, in my opinion, will be able to use the full thousand molecules, right? It's just yeah. not possible. So, you know, we're creating it, and then we want to give it out, like in the sense of we want somebody else to take the reins from there and make something amazing out of it. So that's where yeah. I see CB.
0: Well, that's that's really cool, because that's very much kind of uh, an Alexander Shulgin sort of uh, perspective there that you're you're building the tools and opening up the the work shed, so to speak, right. for people to take those and figure out what they can do with them, what they can learn from them and and continue um, this ever building body of, of knowledge and wisdom. Um, not just around these chemicals, but also how the body works, how, you know, one thing that's interesting about psychedelics is what can they tell us about the, the mind body connection and just the concept of what is consciousness and how does the brain, you know, influence it? You know, all these sort of things, how does consciousness emerge? There are all of these sort of higher level philosophical questions that these, tools can give us ways to explore now whether they'll give us answers or not that's a totally different uh situation but at least to have the ability to march into these new territories um you know they're it's it's cool you're you're laying a foundation for pioneers that we've never heard of yet uh to come through and and discover some amazing things so um, yeah the the
1: way i look at it is you know if there's not a cheap accessible platform that could produce different types of molecules, you know, those, nothing is going to come out of it because it's just, you know, we're wasting a lot of potential. So, you know, for for the way I look at it is, you know, for us to provide a thousand different molecules, let's say in, in five or 10 years from now to different people and whatever application they might do, I think that's going to open a lot of doors like you said in terms of, new possibilities. So if that doesn't exist, then, you know, medicine is not, it's not going to advance the same way. And, and I think that's one of the things that is very interesting about, and and what I love about what I do is, you know, I mean, obviously, we're, we're a startup, we're a business where, you know, obviously, as a company, you have to make money, Uh, you have to raise money, you have to sell product, you have to get revenue. But I think, you know, it's also another awesome thing when you feel like, you're actually doing something meaningful. So, you know, again, I, you know, one is that, you know, we're making molecules. That, I do get the argument from people that, hey, this is not natural. Why, why don't you have a shaman with you? And why aren't you just, you know, sitting in a drum circle with the, doing these molecules? And, and respectfully, I mean, I've been in drum circles. I've done all that. But I respectfully disagree with that because I feel like, you know, there's a difference between taking these molecules semi-recreationally like these, you know, these situations call for. And then there's another thing, which is making medicine out of it, real medicine. Like, you know, when you're taking real medicine, you don't have a shaman blessing it. I mean, just to, to be real about it, right? I mean, it has yeah. to go through a very rigorous process, which has nothing to do with any of these things. So so from that perspective, I think, you know, I'm uniquely blessed to be in this position where I can make a difference in that way is, you know, getting scientific stuff done, you know, getting yeah. getting in front of the FDA. And I think, I think in the future, that is that will be the future of psychedelics as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, cannabis was the same way, right? Cannabis used to be, uh, you know, something that people did. Now you have FDA proof medications coming out. And I think with psychedelics, it's going to be even more so the case because you, I don't think there's going to be a very big recreational market for tryptamines just mm-hmm. because the abuse potential or, you know, somebody does psilocybin and they get in the car. I mean, anything could happen, right? So so I think for trip to me, this definitely going to open a new era. I think for for mental health and other conditions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and a couple of things you said that I want to point out before we finish here that I think is uh, just particularly important to note. Uh, once again, similar similar backgrounds here. You know, myself as well. Like I've been through all of the, I don't know the ritual around psychedelics. I've been uh-huh. in that world. That's that's. Uh, I, sp- I spent a, a nice chunk of of my life in my 20s, you know, really exploring all of that. Um, and I think sometimes people in the industry forget that uh, people like yourself or myself that are working professionally in these industries with natural products and things, um, that if we're talking about things that maybe they're not so comfortable with or don't have uh, a framework to understand, you know, why we're you know trying to find avenues and and homes for these these ideas um i think it's important to know that like we're not we're not just like suits that have come along and know that people like psychedelics or cannabinoids or whatever and and so you know we push those out but there i think about people like so for instance my father who has ptsd Right. and um, and several other issues, anxiety issues and stuff. I think about someone like him that could really, really benefit from psychedelics. And and he actually is. He's uh, right now, at least, um, has access to legal ketamine and mm-hmm. has ketamine yeah. sessions and stuff, which has been really fascinating that I want to talk about on a podcast episode one day. Um, but for someone like him, I mean, this is an, uh, a guy. He's an old Baptist preacher from Mississippi. Right. You know, like he's not going to be taking mushrooms he's not going to be making ayahuasca and going through an ayahuasca session but what he will but what he will do is in a safe controlled setting he will engage a psychedelic experience i think if uh the right setting were presented to him where they were like you know you can take psilocybin and you know we've got these controls in place you'll be monitored you're safe you know all these sort of things i think he would be very open to that because he knows. Um, how these compounds can affect mental health and how profound they can actually, you know, those effects can be. And so this is also about opening the potential benefits of, of these things that, you know, have been used traditionally in, in other cultures in a more, sometimes a more um, ceremonial ritualistic aspect and everything with the original natural products. Well, taking them down this route, it, opens up that potential benefit to a whole host of people I mean hundreds of millions of people, billions of people that um, wouldn't ever go you know to some of the environments that you and I have been in and and seen you know how those how those compounds have been used So I just think that's really really important to note because sometimes people get really and like I said particularly in the cannabis and psychedelic spaces there's just some people that are extremely passionate which I appreciate. Um, But that um, sometimes really don't want to tolerate any space for isolated compounds, you know, formal pharmaceuticals and stuff. And I I just try to make it a point when I can to um, highlight that, you know, for some people, maybe that's fine. But for a lot of other people, um, you know, this is needed.
1: Right. And yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I think one thing that uh, everybody should remember, like you said, is. If you are doing psychedelics, you should be tolerant of other people. <laughs> and yeah. So I find it interesting that people that are you know, doing all this talking about self-heal and progression and tolerance, and then they're not tolerant. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, – and I think it stems from the idea that they feel that their business is somehow threatened. So if you look at a lot of these uh, businesses, they have built their practice on this sort of ideology, which is fine. And I think there's a place for that. There's a place for mm-hmm. that in society. And when somebody like me comes along, I think they feel a little threatened that, you know, this guy might change the business as I know it or, or whatever it may be. So I understand where they're coming from. But, you know, to, the way I look at it is, you know, the way that you use psychedelics in the traditional or the tribal sense will never be a, an FDA approved therapy. If right. you're trying to help people and get this out to the masses out here, not in the jungle, then this is how it has to be. Like there is no other way. I mean, you can't change how the FDA regulates products. So you have to fit in the mold that the FDA has created. So that's how I see it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as you pointed out early on in the conversation, it's also a wildlife conservation issue too. Uh, And we can't forget that, that, you know, it's like, okay, you love cannabis, you love psychedelic. Well, cannabis is a exception because it's such a big agricultural commodity, but psychedelics particularly You know you love it you want everybody to you know be exposed and all this sort of stuff but we can't you know we can't be ripping the bark off of all these trees from the jungle to make ayahuasca we can't you know there's just so many elements to this that we also have to be sensitive to um as well that the work that you're doing is is really helping to address if we can find more um, ecologically conscious ways of producing these chemicals with less waste that is more efficient and more pure, right? And that, that's something that we have to very, you know, seriously consider and and um, and adopt in yeah. in its right context. I completely agree. Yeah, well, awesome. I know I've kept you a little bit over, but this has been a fascinating and awesome conversation, as I I knew it would. Um, thanks so much for being willing to come on. And I want to give you a few moments here. Um, feel free to plug anything you want. Let people know how to learn more about CB Therapeutics um you know your website any if you have any social media presences or anything like that um the floor is now yours to share with our listeners anything you like
1: thank you i mean honestly i i I didn't really know what to expect coming in here but uh i can honestly say that this has probably been one of the best conversations i've had in a while like i don't feel like we're anything. we're just hanging out and we're just (laughs) having a chat so so yeah it's it's my pleasure and again thank you so much for uh, bringing me here um yeah i mean you know i'm not i'm not a a self-promoting type of person in that way where you know i mean i think people know what cb therapeutics is uh you know you can definitely check us out online or the website um you know in terms of you know my parting message would be that you know it's a very exciting industry to be in uh it's a very exciting place to be in where you know you can create these sorts of things so uh, yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to the future. I mean, I can't wait to see what's going to happen in you know the next two years, the three years, the four years, and, and more even more so, even so about more than my own company, I'm excited to see what the future holds for the space in general and for helping people that have these sorts of serious issues. So people that have depression and PTSD, I hope we, we figure out a way where, you know, we can solve these people's problems because ultimately that's what this whole thing is all about. Right. So, yeah. That's, that's my last word.
0: (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, everyone listening, thanks so much for tuning in. I'm so glad to once again, be at these interviews and be uh, bringing these conversations to you. If you want to learn more about curious about cannabis and I'll, uh, for those of you that have listened all the way through this interview, I'll give you a little preview. There's actually a new project I'm working on uh, where this conversation will fit perfectly, uh, but it's called serious about psychedelics. So Curious about cannabis, serious about psychedelics, a little theme, but uh, more and more, a lot of the people that I'm talking to um, that are working in the cannabis space are also, you know, doing some work in uh, the psychedelic space too. So um, uh, sometime next year, you're going to see a a new podcast rollout that's going to focus particularly on psychedelics and the emerging space there. So those of you that have listened this long, you get that little little, uh, sneak peek there. Um, if you want to learn more about us, go to cacpodcast.com. You can also find us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Instagram is usually the best place to connect with us on social media. And, um, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. To support the show and get access to an exclusive members-only podcast feed, access to private events, merchandise discounts, and more, visit www.patreon.com slash Curious About